Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about whoever says the truth. My take on elections, money, and corruption. If I had made this recording a week ago, I honestly could have said that the biggest problem facing me in the 2012 general election, particularly for the President of the United States, is that I do not know who to vote for. That is now not true. Casting an absentee ballot, I've made my decision. But it wasn't easy, because what I wanted to accomplish was to vote a straight ticket of independence. And the funny thing is, one of the races where it's easier to find an independent candidate to vote for is the presidential election. And yet, I must say to my fellow Republicans that it was very, very tempting this year for me to vote for Barack Obama. I resisted the temptation, as I did four years ago. But the main reason it was tempting this year is that it seems as if, in many ways, the Republican Party has done everything in its power to push me in the direction of trying to make sure that Mitt Romney, and in particular, his running mate Paul Ryan, did not find themselves in a position of power. It's almost as if a conspiracy has taken place where old school Democrats have taken over the Republican Party and in some sort of a mad satire converted them into something that no self-respecting Republican could possibly vote for. Now, I suppose that raises the question of what it means to be a self-respecting Republican, but I'll back off the Republican Party for now. If you visited Inappropriate Conversations page on Facebook, you have a pretty good idea of where the issues that I'm the most passionate about lie and how somebody who is a Christian and who's passionate about being a Christian and what Christianity is all about could have a real problem with the theocratic mind of the Republican Party today. So I won't dwell on it. To be honest, though, if I covered that familiar territory, it wouldn't be very different from the other familiar territory that I'm likely to cover today. This could either be a very short episode full of cliches or we'll see how, how the ebb and the flow of it goes. Because I could just as easily you know, do this podcast with just a handful of very quick, almost trite reminders. Like, when you vote the lesser of two evils, you are doing evil. The only way to fight corruption is to fight corruption. That when you lay down with somebody, you're going to be waking up with them in the morning. That all of these problems exist. And the number one thing that I hear back from people, and it's been going on for almost a decade now, discussing presidential elections. Well, if I go all the way back to the year 2000, I voted for an independent then. I wish that I had voted for an independent in 2004, and I've never been as proud as I, as I have been to vote for the candidate I voted for in 2008. It's just that Ralph Nader is not available to vote for this year, and you know, let's be honest, we'll probably never be a presidential candidate again. He was the right choice in 2008, by the way. So, did I vote independent? Yes, I did. And it almost doesn't matter which one I voted for. Because the argument you hear back is, well, you know, there's no credible candidate. Or what in the world would happen if Jill Stein actually became president? Well, first off, maybe some good. What in the world would happen if Rocky Anderson became president? Maybe some good. But, you know, the problem with that is that 
you don't get to wait to vote for a third party until the third party is popular and powerful enough to quote unquote earn your vote. If you want third party candidates to come out of the woodwork, if you want the best, brightest, and least corrupt minds in both the Republican and the Democratic Party to leave the cesspool they're in and run as an independent or align themselves in some new political party, you're going to have to vote independent first. You're going to have to show the best and brightest out there that you're willing to cast a vote for somebody who's not a republicrat. Because on one level, especially where the level is the issue of corruption, there is no difference between Republicans and Democrats. Both of them, in a lot of cases, are taking the same huge payouts from the same organizations. And when they're not taking the same money from the same banks or the same pharmaceutical companies to keep the status quo in place you know, the way it is, to keep things the way they've always been, when that's not happening, you still get these parallels. You get parallels where every time somebody who is politically conservative complains about Soros, you've got somebody who's politically liberal who complain, complain about the Koch brothers. It's not any different. The game is being played in a very corrupt way. So how do people with integrity, and I am in some ways pointing a finger at all of my fellow Americans who voted for either a Republican or a Democrat, all of my fellow Americans who had an opportunity on any any place in any one of their ballots to cast an independent vote and chose not to, you're furthering the corruption. Because the only way you can make it better is to establish that there is a large enough groundswell of people. It doesn't have to be 50%. It doesn't have to be 35% and generate some sort of plurality. I've always argued that 20% would be comfortably enough to get this done. Who knows whether 10% wouldn't be enough to do it, where people would look and say, hey, you know what? On the budget that those people had, with the limited access to media, and by limited access, I mean limited access, they were able to accomplish this. And if I am sick and tired of kissing the tail end of lobbyists and playing what's essentially a corrupt game, I can, I can go and do it in a completely different way. I can do it in a genuinely American way, a founding fathers kind of a way. Well, I think we're going to find that some of those best and brightest would jump and would move over. And people who are willing to compromise who can't right now because they're buried inside an ideological you know, lockstep with the party they're in could suddenly have the freedom to mix and match and say, you know what? I'm not going to pretend that I want to turn this country into a theocracy. I just think we ought to balance our budget. And you'd be shocked, I believe, at how many Americans could rally behind that individual. How many Americans who are pretending that they can only vote for a president who's, quote unquote, a right wing evangelical Christian could get past some of those issues if the person was a man of integrity or a woman of integrity willing to do the right things. But they're never going to step up. They're never going to step up unless there's a credible reason why they could actually make a difference. Now, there is another way, of course, that somebody could influence the political process and make a significant difference and even make a dent, a Ross Perot-sized dent, or actually, frankly, much bigger than that, sort of standing on that foundation. And that's if the media would pay attention. Now, we're buried in more media coverage today than it feels like than ever before. I realize the media isn't as monolithic and it isn't as powerful, but those of us who have either satellite or cable know that we have more channels than we've ever had before. And if you discount the influence of radio, which does appear to be waning, 
there is satellite radio. There's also podcasts, and the podcast equivalent out there in print is the blog. It's not hard to find media attention, which is why I think that a lot of the media attention game is completely rigged. When you look at ideologically oriented networks, they're oriented toward one candidate. It almost doesn't matter who the candidate is. I said on Twitter a while back that I'm 100% convinced that if the Antichrist or the Beast wanted to come in a Revelation-style paradigm and take over the United States of America by running for president and becoming president, he would, of course, be a Republican. He would be a Republican, and he would be pro-life, and he would want prayer back in schools, and he would be against abortion, and he would be against birth control, because that's how you get elected, because your average religious right, you know, evangelical Christian in the political process today would have no problem whatsoever voting for Satan. I don't even think he'd have to change his name. Hello, I'm Lucifer, and I'm pro-life. That's all you need to know. You're going to vote for the devil, aren't you? Well, of course you are, <laughs> because look at the politics that we've seen this year. You know, there's a couple of things I'd like to see when these elections are over. I don't know if I will. It seems like it's almost too bold of a move. But when you read all of the apocalyptic predictions that have been made by Republicans, if Barack Obama gets reelected and to be fair, all the things that I just said a minute ago about, you know, you know, and do I want to be one heart attack or, you know, one traffic accident away from Paul Ryan being the president? No, I don't. And when you look at all those sort of sort of dire predictions about oh, how bad things could be if. You'd swear that the Antichrist was already running for president. But, you know, one of the things that I'd like to see from all this talk where many churches, Catholic churches and Protestant churches alike, have taken that one step too far and said, yes, we believe that in order to be the Church of Jesus Christ, whether of Latter-day Saints or otherwise, we've got to endorse a candidate. Well, I would like, post-election, to see all of those entities create, uh, declared to be political entities rather than religious entities and losing that exception and become taxed. You could come a long way toward putting the necessary budget to you know, t buy us some time and tide us over until we can figure out how to get control of our spending and our priorities. If you just said, you know, okay, <laughs> because the bishop in charge of Boston or New York have turned a blind eye or maybe even in the case of uh, the West Coast, suggested, urged, cajoled, and peer pressured their priests into making political recommendations, who you should vote for on this issue, including for president of the United States. Well, you just declare the entire diocese to be a political entity and tax it accordingly. You could go a long way. And of course, a lot of these pastors are doing it on purpose because they're looking for a fight, just like Jesus would never do. So, It'd be interesting if after the election, the some of the consequences of some of the misbehaviors this year was that those people who are truly running political organizations had to own it. I read a quote a long time ago. I believe it was on a website called Slacktivist. Um, and it basically said that we need to stop kidding ourselves. We've been sold this bill of goods that the religious right is a religious organization that is trying to influence the political sphere. Not true. The religious right is a political organization that's disguising itself as a religious organization to try to change religion. And when you look at it, in many ways, they've succeeded. I, I could imagine a situation where I could easily find myself slapped in the face for quoting Jesus Christ verbatim and accurately from the Bible 
to a fellow Christian. How dare I speak those kinds of words to her? She's a good Bible-believing Christian. And how dare I do things which rub her the wrong way or, or speak ill of her political leanings um, as if it was you know me doing the talking as opposed to Jesus doing the talking. So I think we've really become severely twisted, so much so, in fact, that right now the Republicans and the Democrats have such a firm control, not just over fundraising, not just over the mainstream media, but even over the debate process to such an extent that if I were to relate the story I'm about to just briefly tell and, just, and, and not use any names and not use any places and not identify the country and ask you to guess, you would probably assume that I was describing something that happened in an old-style Soviet bloc country. And, you know, we hear a lot of talk about, you know, people screaming from the top of their lungs about the evils of communism and the evils of socialism and how we are somehow in grave danger of something that died in the Cold War in 1990, by and large. You know, we, we have to invent a new Cold War enemy because the Cold War enemy we have has been defeated, that sort of problem, because we have a military-industrial complex that needs to constantly be at war, if you don't feed the beast, the beast will die, and I don't think we can stand to suffocate under the burden of that dead beast lying on top of us. We've got a problem, and that's not what this show's about. Save it for another day, right? But Jill Stein, the candidate for president, and her running mate, Sherry Honkula, show up to the presidential debate at Hofstra University in New York and want to attend the debate because they've not been allowed to participate. And if this sounds familiar, this is very similar to what happened to Ralph Nader, um, in 2004, it's been going on since really probably since 1996 or so, where the Republicans and Democrats have essentially squashed dissent. They're spraying, metaphorically spraying pepper spray in the face of any challenger, not unlike what has happened in New York City and in, in Davis, California last year in the Occupy movement. Because, you know, Stein and her running mate show up to attend the debates, the police block their path from going onto the sidewalk and into the, into the area where the auditorium is. So they took a seat right there. They were then arrested for blocking the road when the only reason they were blocking anything was that they weren't being allowed to proceed through. And like any citizen, any citizen in the United States attend a debate if they want to, or show up to the site of the debate or peacefully protest at the site of a debate. Um, they were arrested and held handcuffed to a chair for eight hours until the debate was over and the debate participants had all left. These are people who were on 85% of the ballots in the United States of America. There are exceptions, Oklahoma being one. But they're on the ballot in an overwhelming majority of states. They have enough states that if they won those states, they would easily win the Electoral College and become the president and vice president of the United States. Arrested by the police on a university campus, taken to a secluded room somewhere on, on the university site and handcuffed to a chair. There's something wrong with our country. If a third party, if an opposition party can be treated, well, like, like Guantanamo Bay, you know, like they're enemy combatants of some sort. And to me, that really, you know, cuts to the heart of the matter that I wanted to vote for somebody who was on the opposition side of this fence, because it raises the question of what are we so afraid of? Now, it's another interesting question to say, if you're hearing about this story first on inappropriate conversations, then something's wrong. I don't do current events. 
I'm not a news outlet. I'm not pretending to be a journalist, despite the fact that I've had some experience in that area. No, you should have heard about this on the evening news. This should have been a leading story. There should have been interviews with the candidates. And what does it tell you about all of these networks that there isn't? Now, I heard about it. First, I heard about it on Stitcher.com. I've since verified from other sources, but on Stitcher.com, I actually heard an interview with Stein herself. Now, you can hear inappropriate conversations on Stitcher Smart Radio as well, but it's not just podcasts, on-demand news, talk, and more from your mobile phone. And what I caught was on-demand news with an interview with Jill Stein um, talking about that very night, where as a candidate for president, she went to a debate, and to prevent her from speaking, even on the sidewalk outside the debate, she was arrested and tied to a chair. You know, something is fundamentally wrong. A wise man wants to find crazy as doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Voted for a Democrat or Republican lately? Seen any difference? Feeling crazy yet? There is a cure for political insanity. You just need an injection of common sense. Watch out, though. It's a very big needle. Dan Carlin, Common Sense. I think I'm going to spend a big chunk of the month of November talking about truth. And for that reason, I've called this episode, Whoever Says the Truth. It's actually shortened for Whoever Says the Truth Shall Die. And when I get to the different drummer, I'll explain that more fully. But one of the things I want to do, pretty much all month long... This theme is going to be running through the importance of truth. And if there's one thing that I'm thankful for and actually sad that I get it in such small, small measure these days is I'm thankful for people of the truth. It is harder and harder to find people of the truth in church when they say they believe they're following Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth and the life. What they really mean is that in their mind, He's the only way to God. They're hitched to his wagon. Everyone else is out. And by the way, he's pro-life. We'll talk at some other time about that being a fundamental misunderstanding of everything that Jesus is saying and everything that the author of John's gospel is communicating. But it's hard to find people of the truth in a place where they're following somebody who says he's the truth and they actually identify themselves as people of the way, meaning people of the truth. Well, good luck in politics where our expectations are so much lower. But I will hit in the coming weeks things that are you know not true about church, and a lot of it will be the way the political process has polluted everything. But the other issue that I'm going to hit hopefully next week are things that are not true in journalism, because there are lies of omission just as much as lies of commission. And again, if a story like this breaks and it doesn't even get the last five minutes on the evening news, and hey, and oh, by the way, well, then the, new, the news people are just as corrupt as everyone else. Again, what are we so afraid of? If a third party has nothing to offer, if a third party genuinely doesn't have a meaningfully different point of view, well then, hey, you got your straw man argument all set up for you. Invite the person to the debate, expose them for the fraud they are, distract yourself from having to go head to head with your, your big name opponent, and move on. You see... I'm pretty fed up with the process right now because I live in a swing state. In fact, I don't just live in a swing state. This year, depending on who you talk to, I may live in the swing state. Now, we all know that in 2000, that was Florida. 
And we've lost sight of the fact that in 2008, it was Missouri. I made a comment. It was before I'd actually started the inappropriate conversation show that it would Missouri had the chance to be just as much a flip a coin. We don't know who won situation in 2008 as Florida was in 2000, but nobody was going to care because the only way anybody would care about every vote counting in the state of Missouri was if Missouri actually was crucial to tipping the balance to one candidate or the other. And when Obama had sewn things up with Missouri still up in the air, we all just kind of lost sight of Missouri. And yet in some ways, all of the votes of all those good citizens of Missouri somehow well, did not count. Listen, it's no picnic to be a voter in a state where people think yours is the only vote that counts. Now, I reject the idea right up front. The reality is that every single state's vote counts because the state votes pick the winners in those states. The winners of those states contribute the electoral college votes. Your votes count. Stop making the false distinction that if your vote doesn't actually tip the scale somehow, it's unimportant. Every vote's important regardless of whether or not you live in a swing state. Because believe me, when you live in a swing state, and you get to see just that much more in 2012 of Barack Obama and Mitt Romney, it's just one more traffic jam. It's one more set of Secret Service people you've got to try to figure out how to not be stuck behind on your way to the grocery store or on your way to the library. There's no real win if one of these presidential candidates shows up to give a speech at one of the local churches or one of the local high schools. But even that doesn't compare to when you go to get home every night. If you're unlucky enough to be home and receive the calls in person, everybody wants to survey you. Everybody wants to pitch you. The doorbell ring. I get more personal visits at the door for political candidates this year than in any year I can remember living in the city that I live in. Or for some people, depending on how their answering machine works, their answering, my answering machine, if you get that silence of computer-generated phone calls, I don't know that it makes a recording. It doesn't always make a recording. But I've got friends and coworkers who come home every night to an answering machine completely full of all of the people or all the you know computers who have called them that day to do nothing more than pitch political messages. There was a time not very many years ago when I didn't have a DVR. I think I'm maybe one of the latter people in my family to get a DVR. And now I see it as absolutely essential. I don't know how I could watch television without it because every single night, is chock full of horrific political advertising. I don't like political advertising at its best because I don't feel like it's honest. Whoever says the truth shall die. I don't think it's honest. But even if it was honest, it's not well made. And even, it, even when it happens to be fairly well made, dishonest though it may be, it's negative. It's one attack after another. I saw an ad just tonight where the candidates stood out and said, you know what? I bet you think that me and my opponent are all evil people who kill puppies because of all the advertising you've seen. And then you know what he did in the very next sentence? Attack his opponent. You know, I don't need to see one more ad to know who's running in this race. And ironically, because I've got some business travel and some pleasure travel to do, I'm not going to be in town on election day. I filled out an absentee ballot already. Now I'm sitting here as somebody who's already cast my vote putting up with these ads. Imagine how you would feel a week after the election if the ads were still running. That's how I feel. If there is a silver lining anywhere in this, you know, poor, hapless voter stuck in a swing state situation, if there's a, a possible moment of humor related a little bit to 2012, but also hearkening back to the year 2000, it's this. 
I mean, my heart goes out to all the people who are without power still. At one point, more than two and a half percent of the entire U.S. population was out of power in one way or another related to Hurricane Sandy. But that power situation could play a role in what happens on Election Day and how quickly votes can be counted or how votes are even tabulated. And what happens if the uh, power issues and polling place issues discourage voter participation in places like New York City or Boston? or Washington, D.C. And what happens if, as a result of that, it doesn't really tip the election that, you know, there's enough New York voters all over the state who are probably going to, you know, if, if this red state, blue state stuff is right, then Obama's going to win New York. He's going to win New York even if half New York City doesn't vote because they feel like they can't vote. But wouldn't it be fascinating if in the year 2012, Barack Obama won the Electoral College and thereby a new term as president of the United States? but lost the popular vote. There's almost something, you know, there's a meme there. It's, it's so perfectly meta that all the people who have spent 12 years complaining about the fact that Bush was never really the president after all, would have to deal face to face with the potential hypocrisy of making excuses for why, oh, you know, Obama really won the popular vote, even though he didn't win the popular vote. And would they actually have the integrity to stand up and say, we should do this whole vote thing again? Because, you know, maybe, just maybe, um, the popular vote's that important. I've spoken about the Electoral College previously on Inappropriate Conversations, a whole show just about the concept. And to me, I don't have an issue with it. It's constitutional. And the advantage, quote-unquote, advantage, that it gives to citizens of smaller states is specifically in there by constitutional design. This isn't a founding father's mistake. This isn't some evolution in the law that they had no way of foreseeing. It's what they meant to do. But to me, the Electoral College is the final answer. But if you think the popular vote's the final answer, well, then what do you do if there's enough people in predominantly liberal states who don't get to cast a popular vote? And it doesn't change the general election, but it actually changed the popular result. There's something, again, Ironically humorous about that in a situation that has almost no humor whatsoever, because four years ago on election night, I was looking for the returns, not because I was that really upset about whether it was going to be Obama or McCain in between the two. I would have rather had Obama, but I have no passion about this. And I think I'm I'm supported by his legacy in four years. He hasn't done anything truly meaningful to address the biggest issues, even in areas like healthcare, where you know, there's all this controversy and all this hubbub, you know, he didn't he didn't address the issue head on. He sidestepped the biggest problems of all, and you know he's allowed the debate to become all about the little bit he did do instead of the bigger bit he should have done. And to be honest with you, if you're Mitt Romney and you'd been serious about wanting this this man's vote. You easily could have said just a couple of little things to get it. You had a shot. You know, first, you know, more, more forcefully tamp down the ridiculous arguments being made by your running mate and others about what rape means. And, you know, twisted ideas about, you know, the implications of, of abortion. Just, you know, just set that aside and say, I'm not looking to go back from Obamacare to what we had before. I'm looking to take that germ of an idea and make it better. Who knows how many voters you could get if you were just willing to make the argument that you were going to grant the president a little bit of deference on trying to fix an issue 
but then call out forcefully and bravely that he fixed it badly, that he fumbled completely. And the two or three things that you could point out that he did well probably ought to be protected. As we do one or two steps further, maybe one or two steps further in the same direction, and maybe one or two steps further in a side or a different direction, but don't just go backward. It's the backwardness that lost me. If you don't think these two main political parties are out of ideas, ask yourself a question. Did you hear something new this year? Didn't this sound just like 1980, 1984, 2000, 2004? Isn't this the same old argument over and over again? Now, maybe you can make the argument that our problems aren't new. And certainly if you're a you know social conservative, yeah, our problems aren't new. You're dealing with the same problem you perceive to be true in 1966 and in 1973. If it's all prayer in schools and abortion, the problem hasn't changed. But I don't know. I look out at the political landscape. I look at this modern historical era we're living in, and I see some different problems that we didn't have before. And if I can't find different solutions in third parties... At least I'm going to find people there who will, are more likely to come up with a different solution, who at least are definitely more likely to identify the problem. If you had seen the third-party debate, which I didn't, and compared it to the main presidential and vice presidential debates, which I also didn't watch, I think you would have seen, by all accounts, a completely different set of issues being discussed. Now, Why didn't I watch the main presidential debates and vice presidential debate? Well, you know, I don't like reality TV shows. I don't like things that are scripted. I don't like things where we're going to have a debate about all the issues, but here's the issues we can't talk about. And we're going to be open to all questions, but these are the questions you can't ask. And of course, above all, here's the people that we can't have a debate with. We can only have a debate with the person who's across from me pretending to be my opponent. I mean, we're both being paid by more or less the same people in more or less the same way. So if you follow the money, not that different. Both of us are so deep into the corruption that no question about corruption in politics is going to come up. No question about the way we finance campaigns is going to come up because we're not going to talk about it because we're both just as guilty as the other guy on the issue. But I also didn't watch the third party debate. And the reason I didn't watch the third party debate is I couldn't find it on TV. And by the time I finally got a tweet telling me where it was, I'd thrown in the towel. You know, it it would have been one thing if it was, you know, showing just on one of the cable channels or even a cable news channel. But if you're serious about politics and we hear so much political blather on on networks like CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, no coverage of the debate on those channels. What a coup it would be for you to be the only cable news channel covering that particular event. And it makes you wonder why no one was covering it at all. It makes you wonder why instead of covering it, they were probably covering it up. Maybe somebody in those third-party debates, by dealing with issues that weren't dealt with in the other debates, or answering questions in a different way than they were answered in the other debates, you might have just told the truth a little bit. And I want to share a quick story at the end of this episode about what it means to say whoever says the truth shall die. Whoever Says the Truth Shall Die is a documentary by a Dutch director named Philo Bregstein. It was made in 1981, 
and essentially outlined the work, the life, and the death of Italian filmmaker Pier Paolo Pasolini. Pasolini, born 1922, died violently in 1975, is the different drummer. And I'm starting a little bit of a different take on the different drummer. It won't be this way forever, but for a while now, I'm going to discuss different drummers with whom I may have some fundamental issues. It's enough to hit 100 episodes and actually to hit 100 different drummers already along the way in those 100 plus episodes and talk about people for whom I generally have a lot of praise. But there have been episodes in the past where I've apologized on behalf of the different drummer for the aspects of their behavior or their ideas that are, you know, unacceptable, perhaps even reprehensible. I can remember introducing one where I said, I just know one day this guy's going to come back to bite me. I'm going to cite him now. I'm going to praise him for one or two particular works he's done. And then later on, he's going to do something in the near future that's just going to be embarrassing. And I'm going to have to feel guilty. But well, I don't feel guilty. In fact, now I'm going to name a different drummer from whom you know, I've got a fair amount of issues. I've named a lot of filmmakers in the past, filmmakers for whom I have genuinely a great deal of praise. In some, I've even said, just watch anything they've made. You're going to be, you're be, you'll be in good shape. Joel and Ethan Cohen, you could play a game of drunken dartboard, put all the names of their films up on a board, take a shot, throw a dart, whatever lands on, you're probably in good shape. The same cannot be said of Pasolini. Now, if I look at Pasolini's filmography, there are more than a handful of films of his that I either have seen or that I own. And maybe the first one that I should mention came up in the fourth inappropriate conversation where I was talking about how few quality films have been made about the life of Jesus Christ. Pasolini made one in 1964, the gospel according to St. Matthew. In some of the ways, if you eliminate animation, he's actually made the very best ever film about Jesus. But I have other films by him that I either have seen or that I own and one day will see. Uh, Akatone, the first one, sort of a, almost a neorealist film uh, shot with you know kids who live on the street. Mama Roma, his segment of Rogo Pog. Uh, again, the same man who would one year later make the Gospel according to St. Matthew, which is a fairly reverential, if not, well, it's accurate, if not really reverential, you know, telling of Matthew's Gospel as if it was biography. Well, he got in a ton of trouble you know, a year earlier for his contribution to an anthology film called Rogopog. Now, this was called that because the films were uh, made by you know, Roberto Rossellini and um, Jean-Luc Godard and uh, you know, Pasolini. So the, the initials of the directors, the four directors, are you know, kind of scrunched together, abbreviated form to make the name of the film. But his part of that particular episode was about a film crew shooting a movie about the life of Christ where the actor who's playing Christ is put into a realistic sort of situation in a crucifixion scene, not with nails, but with ropes. But again, a lot of crucifixions back in ancient times, the Romans did those crucifixions with ropes. And the way you die in a crucifixion typically is not um, bleeding to death. I mean, the, even if you get nails you know, through your, through your wrist, unless there's a really unlucky drive and you just happen to nick an artery or something, the main way people tended to die from crucifixion was asphyxiation. Just being unable to get air into your lungs when hanging in that kind of a position for an extended period of time after your muscles sort of give out, after the pain and the fatigue takes, takes toll, you suffocate to death. Well, in this you know, film about a filmmaker making a movie about a crucifixion, the actor dies on the cross, and the film deals with sort of the, the aftermath of that. It was... 
it was viewed as blasphemous. But yeah, that was just the beginning of the blasphemy that you would see from this particular director. Other films by Pasolini that I either have or I have seen, Teorema, The Decameron, Arabian Nights, and Salo, or The 120 Days of Sodom. I'm going to get to that film at the end, because it is in that film that you can explain how this man came to be murdered and what the problem was that society or the authorities had with him. But I don't want to sell Pasolini short. He's more than just a controversial filmmaker who made movies of, that were varying in their quality. I mean, that's an accurate depiction, but it's not the only one. The IMDb biography for Pasolini reads like this. Pier Paolo Pasolini achieved fame and notoriety long before he entered the film industry. A published poet at age 19, he had already written numerous novels and essays before his screenplay in 1954. His first film, Akatone, uh, made in 1961, was based on his own novel and its violent depiction of the life of a pimp in the slums of Rome, and it caused a sensation. He was arrested in 1962 when his contribution to Rogopog was considered blasphemous, and he was given a suspended sentence. It might have been expected that his next film, The Gospel According to St. Matthew, which presented the biblical story in a totally realistic, stripped-down style, would cause a similar fuss. But in fact, it was rapturously acclaimed as one of the few honest portrayals of Christ on screen. If you jump to the end of his story, the film Pigsty and the Notorious Salo, a relentlessly grim fusion of Benito Mussolini's fascist Italy with the Marquis de Sade, was banned in Italy and in many other countries for several years. Pasolini was murdered in a still mysterious circumstance shortly after completing the film. Pasolini made a movie where he intentionally used incredibly pungent you know, dialogue, boring almost, in places. I'm not a big fan of the movie Solo. But in, in addition to that, a great deal of violence, scatology, uh, humiliations, degradations, murders that when the film was, the film in some places looks like it's a snuff film. Again, it's made with a certain degree of amateurness to its style, that it doesn't bring you in like it's some sort of a documentary. And it doesn't feel so amateur that it feels like it's a home movie. Instead, it just, it gives you some degree of emotional distance from it, in that it's not so well made that you can't push it away. But I had seen it first, and was discussing the movie with, you know, a fellow uh, manager of the record store. So one of the other managers of the record store in the chain that I worked in. And because of, you know, the things I said, again, none of them praising the film. In fact, he probably read the review I wrote. He wanted to see it himself. Well, a few weeks later, after he'd seen the movie, we were comparing notes. And it shocked me to realize that he had remembered parts of this movie that I'd seen a couple of months earlier, and he'd seen a couple of weeks earlier, that I had completely forgotten. I pride myself on having a good memory and I was fully engaged, I guess would be the way I would word it. And I remembered parts of the movie that he had forgotten completely. And a part of it was that the level of violence in certain places and the shock to conventional morality in many places was so great that each one of us had chose to blank things completely out. And there were things in the part of the movie that dealt with excrement that I remembered that he couldn't remember. And there were things in the movie dealing with blood. In fact, almost the entire chapter called The Circle of Blood that he remembered that I'd forgotten about. And it tells you something if you can make a movie that's that shocking, that's that offensive. One of my favorite Disney cartoons, 
And it's not going to be a cartoon that people are going to remember as being among the classics. But one of my favorites, all the same, is Lilo and Stitch. And one of the things that happens early in the movie where the Stitch character is introduced as a genetic mutation built to be some sort of weapon of mass destruction, uh, an evil creature, an anarchist in every conceivable way, the creature is brought before this high council of aliens where, you know, creatures from leaders from all over these planets are passing judgment on the doctor who made, you know, the mad scientist who made the creature, but also the creature itself. And the head of the alien council asks the, uh, you know, Stitch, the experiment, if he had anything to say for himself that would mitigate, you know, the uh, inevitable death sentence it was going to get. And it mutters some words in an alien language. It says, Miga Nilo Quista, which apparently is so offensive that, you know, people faint <laughs> and robots throw up nuts and bolts and, and collapse and, you know, all kinds of havoc. To be able to speak words so offensive that people lose consciousness when they hear them? Well, Pasolini got awful close to that standard. Whether you call that a, a high standard from an anarchy perspective or a low standard from an art perspective, hey, it's your call. But he came so close to it that, I mean, I didn't lose consciousness watching the movie, but I blacked out completely certain parts of it. And maybe legitimately... Wouldn't, be, wouldn't have been able to sleep that night <laughs> if I had turned that movie off and tried to go straight to bed. I didn't take that approach. I allowed myself to get distracted with other thoughts and other ideas, but it would have been you know, kind of a disaster. I mean, I, I may share a little piece of a film review that I wrote at the end of this episode where I was trying to review the movie Leaving Las Vegas. And the fact that I, I enjoyed and respected it artistically, but I didn't like it. I didn't like it, in spite of the fact that I had a lot of respect for Nicolas Cage's performance and no quarrel with, with any awards that he won for his acting in that particular film. And then I'm a huge fan of the actress Elizabeth Shue. She's a different drummer. Yeah, I just can't say I enjoy that movie. And when it came right down to it, it was the standard of the difference between Pretty Woman being a light piece of candy and fluff that just got, in some corners, really got slated by people for being too, quote-unquote, nice of a depiction of prostitution. And comparing that with, you know, leaving Las Vegas, which in my opinion was too realistic, too ugly, too good of a depiction of how dark that is. And, you know, to me, the standard that I almost apply, not just in this case, which I'll share, but elsewhere is just you can't, you almost can use the movie Salo or the 120 Days of Sodom as a bellwether. It's almost a compass to say, okay, maybe it's not pointing due north. Maybe it's pointing due south. But even if it's accurately pointing to a place that I never want to go again, I can measure distance against it. It was that visceral, that real, and that disturbing. In the documentary, Whoever Says the Truth Shall Die, the filmmaker presents the case that perhaps Pasolini, a homosexual who was you know, sexually active, Maybe the story, the narrative that we've been told, that he picked up a 17-year-old street hustler and was engaging in, you know, sex for hire, and something went wrong, and the kid, you know, lost his cool and killed him, then maybe that story didn't make sense, considering that Pasolini was in all kinds of ill shape when it was all said and done. I mean, it wasn't a stabbing, steal your wallet, mugging kind of situation, and it wasn't a uh, seller's regret in a sex worker situation where somebody had you know, used fatal violence and self-defense. 
Um, this man's body, well, he was stabbed and clubbed and beaten and burned and run over with a car. That's, that's a statement. That's not a, that's not a crime of passion. That's an assassination. In every conceivable way, Pasolini had become a political figure. There's one section in Wikipedia that talks about his political views. And it's one of the other reasons why I think I'd cite him as a different drummer. He's asking the next question. He's got what in America we might refer to as a third-party approach. Here's one quick example. Pasolini generated heated dis political discussion with controversial analyses of public affairs. For instance, quoting Wikipedia, during the disorders of 1969, when autonomous university students were carrying on a guerrilla-like uprising against the police in the streets of Rome, and all the leftist forces declared their complete support for the students, describing the disorders as a civil fight of the proletariat against the system, Pasolini alone among the communists declared that he was with the police, or more, more precisely, with the police men. He considered them to be the true proletariat, sent to fight for a poor salary and for reasons which they could not understand, against pampered boys of their same age, because they had not the fortune of being able to study. The statement, however, did not stop him from contributing to the autonomous movement, but I think perhaps accurately sometimes saying, hey, you know what, maybe it's not the... Uh, Maybe it's not the media darlings of a political cause that needs support. Maybe, just maybe, the person caught in the middle is the person holding the badge and holding the gun. And for that reason, I think you've got to look at Pasolini from a completely different perspective. Whatever his talents may or may not be as an artist, he certainly was a talented poet. And one of the number one things that the Catholic Church had against him was the fact that he was homosexual. I think we have to do better than that. If I'm going to offer a criticism of him as a different drummer, it's going to be that the quality of his filmmaking was just not as good as the films that were being made in a similar sort of a, you know, uprising against the system way as somebody like Luis Bunuel, also a different drummer. But Pasolini did inspire me. And I don't know that I want, I don't want to tell this story in its own episode. It's, it's not significant enough, but at one point late in college, it dawned on me that I had not, you know, like Pasolini, I had not come up with any sort of screenplay or story idea or, you know, I just hadn't done anything artistically that would represent a complete rejection of society's values. I hadn't found my own way to express any sort of anarchy on film. And so I did over time. I had written some surrealist screenplays and I'd actually written a stage play using modern rock and punk and to tell sort of a anti-establishment story. But it dawned on me that I almost could make a silent documentary film that would almost as good as anything be the biggest way you could stick it to the man and sort of threaten to overthrow the system. What if you made a documentary with no dialogue, no characters, that was essentially, well, what I called it was throne room. And the idea was to get a toilet and have a situation where the facilities itself was transparent enough that you could film through it and more or less place a camera at the bottom of the toilet bowl with, again, sufficient lighting that whatever you were filming, you could see what was going on and just shoot a one-hour documentary of just what that, what that act looks like. In other words, instead of doing what Pasolini did where you have a scene where people are gathering up a lot of excrement and bodily functions and then doing something horrifically offensive with it, 
just go as natural as you possibly can and say, hey, what does this look like? There's this huge variety, of course, of, you know, different bodily functions, um, urination, male and female, different times of life, different ages, different times of month, different sorts of number two, so to speak. And it would be a deeply offensive film. In fact, you would probably have a problem with anybody who didn't find it offensive, but it wouldn't necessarily have any story to tell. And to me, my if I owe any sort of nod of the hat to Pasolini, it's that. It's saying, you know, can you come up with a concept that is so disturbing that maybe just maybe the government, the church, and the police would collude with a street prostitute to murder you because they can't afford the risk that you might just make one more movie. That the idea that you could put the thought you have in your head on film would be so dangerous, so risky, and so offensive that the world would be better off if you were dead than have to confront whatever it is you have to say, true or not. Now, I'm open to speculation that in a lot of films, Pasolini wasn't telling big truths. He was trying to titillate more than anything else in some cases. And, you know, being a homosexual man, I think he had a point of view about whether or not the depiction of female genitalia in what we would call in America R-rated movies, why that was okay and the corresponding body parts for men was immediately X-rated, flaccid or erect. And he sought to do something about that. So he had he'd been pushing buttons and, and rubbing conservatives the wrong way you know, throughout his career. But with the movie Solo, he clearly went too far. Now, do I say that he went too far and that in some ways he deserved to die? No, not by a mile. The world needs more people willing to tell truths, even the kind of truths that might get you killed. If a movie like Showgirls loses part of its target audience by making its much-publicized nudity ineffectually distant, leaving Las Vegas brings the audience in too close to make its admirable honesty relevant. It's one thing to say that the streets are filled with grime. As citizens, we, we can appreciate that. We can be motivated to finance a solution in response to an illuminating example. However, after being shoved face-first into a particularly greasy street corner, those same citizens are motivated only to go home, take a shower, and change clothes. Anne Magnuson, in her role as the vocalist for the avant-garde band Bongwater, took Pretty Woman to task in the song Folk Song by accusing Richard Gere of making, quote, those oh-so-zen-like movies with their oh-so-zen-like messages like, hey, it's fun to be a prostitute. I can't wait to spread my legs across Hollywood Boulevard because maybe some rich, handsome billionaire in a jag will come driving and take me shopping on Rodeo Drive. And that's what a woman's all about anyway, right? Sucking and shopping and sucking and shopping and sucking and shock. But hey, who am I to argue? Because it's the feel-good movie of the summer. It's the feel-good movie of the year. It's the feel-good movie of the millennium. And you know what? If it puts a smile on your face and a song in your heart and a spring in your step, well, whatever makes you happy, whatever makes you happy, whatever makes you happy, whatever gives you hope. Well, Magnuson is not alone in criticizing the makers of Pretty Woman for recasting Cinderella as a prostitute. Still, there is nothing wrong with using a Cinderella model to gloss over a harsh setting, even if such an approach glamorizes one such grimy street corner. 
Would we want the beloved fairy tale to be told with the intricacies of child abuse fleshed out? Leaving Las Vegas unintentionally answers that question by giving Pretty Woman and its detractors exactly what they sought, a realistic depiction of streetwalking in a fiction film. Nicolas Cage has gotten a great deal of praise as an actor, coming for his character Ben. Elizabeth Shue, who makes adventures in babysitting seem like a lifetime ago, matches Cage's flamboyance with an equally impressive control. Sarah, her character, anchors leaving Las Vegas in a manner not unlike Shue's first major role, the Karate Kid's girlfriend. Both Shue and Cage create characters that are only familiar from the outside. The more we learn about them, the less we seem to know. It is precisely these unanswered questions which disarm the natural defense mechanisms making us want to look away from time to time. Observing Ben and Sarah is like a passing a bloody automobile accident shining in the glitter of broken glass. We slow down. We peep intrusively. We feel a little bit guilty for spectating. In fact, enjoying leaving Las Vegas is as shameful for its voyeurism as the feel-good escapism of Pretty Woman is for its rose-colored 2D lenses. In Bongwater's same folk song, Magnuson is faced with the hypothetical choice of watching Brigadoon or Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. She prefers the musical. Just to improve the irony, what if Magnuson's options were My Fair Lady or Leaving Las Vegas? And what does the answer tell us about the attacks against Pretty Woman? The aesthetics of realism is only one new question arising from that answer. These two genres also present different socio-political views of the bourgeoisie. Leaving Las Vegas relates an unredeeming, soul-crushing set of poisonous circumstances that owes a philosophical debt to Pier Paolo Pasolini. With a setting where the characters of Akatoni would need no map, Ben and Sarah have no more hope of escaping their circumstances than any of the teenagers in Salo. Furthermore, the managers of Sarah's apartment make ideal bourgeois antagonists. Pasolini's remake of Marquis de Sade's 121 Days of Sodom, which must be NC-170 if Showgirls is NC-17, well, it's as painful to watch for the what's anticipated as it is for what is actually shown. The depressing sense of inevitability may be the greatest similarity between the plot devices employed by Pasolini and Mike Figgis in Leaving Las Vegas. Cage earned his Oscar for the painstaking portrayal of the inevitable through Ben. But Shoes Sarah belongs more to Pasolini. Her deadened emotions and misplaced sense of hope are just the ironies he would have exploited. Half the movie passes between Sarah's relief, perhaps even delight, at being free from her pimp and the obvious consequences. While Figgis keeps the Sarah character oblivious, he does nothing to relieve the viewer's tension every time she leaves to work. Like the late Italian, though, Figgis doesn't seem to recognize the desperation inherent in the story's brutality. As a writer, Figgis pays off the weight by scripting a gang rape. As a director, he leaves us in the room. The fact that Sarah is the narrator is no excuse. Nor is the juxtaposition between the hotel room and the striking shower scene that follows. It is a cheap trick to make Sarah sympathetic. The picture of Ben's family is all we see, and all we need to see, to feel his pain. Unfortunately, we get to picture Sarah's pain through a predatory teammate's camcorder. If only the desperate attempt to endanger Sarah enough were the only mishandling of her character, 
well, then the excess of figures of script might have been smoothed over by the fine acting. Unfortunately, we don't know enough about Sarah, even though she tells the audience directly, to share her sense that sexual intercourse is the ultimate expression of love. Does she really fail to recognize the genuine loving emotions between these characters, at least the ones between their unfulfilling trysts? If so, there is a completely untapped vein of psychological complexity to Sarah that Shu can't show us because Figgis didn't write it. Leaving Las Vegas is brilliant for holding us so close to undesirable characters. Unfortunately, what we ultimately share with them is not beautiful pathos. It's just pathetic. Although not the feel-good movie of its year, Leaving Las Vegas at least strived for some ironic beauty from the dark side of its Vegas setting. Showgirls, on the other hand, saw only controversy as its neon light. Joe Esterhaus and Paul Verhoeven wanted an NC-17 rating for their movie, and appears they took it right away. What would they have done if the initial rating from the MPAA was R? Would it force them to add more breasts, more table dances, more references to ejaculation? Figgis successfully injected more adult material into his script by concentrating on substance over style. As a result, Leaving Las Vegas tells more with its R rating than Showgirls even attempted for NC-17. What this tells us about the standard of the MPAA is disturbing, but then the Motion Picture Association of America has always been a little disturbing. Still, it's not as bad as the fact that Figgis, like Pasolini, has filmed an automobile accident that I'm likely to stare at again someday, even at the risk of making the same mistake twice. Thanks for listening. Smile on your face and a song in your heart and a spring in your step.